I feel a little bit humbled by that introduction. I'm not quite sure he was talking about the right person. But we do go back a number of years, and I graduated in 2000. And apart from all those computers that were supposed to go wrong tripping over into 2000, for me, the, the dawning was leadership. What does that mean? And I think for those of us who go back a few years with our MBA graduations, I firmly believe that maybe after a while, MBAs lack currency. They've probably got a good seven years currency before you need to think about doing something else, you know, professional development or, or change of career or, or do something or read a little bit more in terms of literature, keep ourselves up to speed. And I think that's really what these set sessions are about. Uh, Grant said putting back. And really what I want to do is put back, given that it's been nine years since I graduated, maybe we do lose a little bit of currency. When we spoke about these spotlight sessions, we wanted them to be, if you like, less formal than what you would get in the boardroom. It is a boardroom, but we're trying to reduce the formality. And we spoke about, well, why don't we just have a fireside chat? Unfortunately, we don't have a fireside here, or where it used to be, we now have a projector screen, but I thought about sort of setting the scene. So we obviously have a fireplace, so we're trying to get you into the theme for tonight, where you can relax, sit back, glass of red, glass of white, but obviously you need to have someone, someone erudite, someone knowledgeable to actually talk to you and inform you and get you to participate. So it looks a little bit like me in the future time, but also we need to be sitting comfortably. So for those that don't have a chair, I do apologise, but we sit comfortably. Now we also have visitors that come along usually unannounced. So if you didn't RSVP tonight, maybe next time, RSVP, or you may sit, be sitting on the chair where someone else should be. So that's enough of the PowerPoint. We did say no PowerPoints. So really what I want to do is talk about, I guess, what I refer to as transformational leadership, moving from transactional, where hands up those people that do have responsibility for managing or leading others. Just a quick show of hands. So would you agree that really management, if you like, managing those people, it's really about compliance and control. It's about issuing commands and expecting some transaction from that. Versus transformational leadership, if you like, which will hopefully by the end of today I'll leave you a model. And if you want a copy of the model, I've got a few handouts here. But the commitment is if you email me, I'll give you um, a soft copy of it. How many would agree that the best way to, to deal with people is empower them to take action and reduce the, the pressure on you as a leader? So I'm seeing nods around the table. So when I was doing a little bit of research and trying to put some academic rigour into my presentation tonight... It's a bad precedent. It's a bad precedent, <laughs> academic rigour. One, one of the comments that really struck home with me was transformational leaders are described as value-driven change agents who make followers more conscious of the importance and value of task outcomes. They provide followers with vision and motivate them to go beyond self-interest for the good of the organisation. So really it's about empowering others to take action. It's, it's about giving people the opportunity to make decisions, but within the confines of the policy or strategy or the direction we as senior leaders make. Peter Drucker goes on to say, much of uh, what we have come to accept as true of business management is about to be challenged. The world is changing at a rapid pace, and I, think, I guess if you look at what's happening around us now with the global financial crisis, as they say, um, things are changing. Only those who understand what those changes mean will be poised to prosper under the new rules. Old paradigms will be replaced by new ones. I don't think there's any arguments there. Accenture did a, a worldwide study on um, senior executives from a whole range of major industries. And some of the outcomes of that was that the number one issue or pressure facing senior executives was to attract and retain skilled staff. And I guess that's not so relevant now in the current economic situation. But just think about it. Six months ago, we were talking about a skills gap in Australia. The skills gap hasn't changed. The economics have changed and maybe we're not recruiting or retaining people as much as we were. But when we come out of this, there'll still be a skills gap. So it's still the number one issue as far as um, 
senior leaders. But the issue I want to focus on tonight is the, the changing organisational culture and more importantly, employee attitudes. So, faced with profoundly new business realities, many companies are falling back on the old leadership habits. So I'm sort of thinking last century, or perhaps even the century before, because some of the, the old leadership habits go back quite a few millennia, but really I want to bring us into the current century. Many soon discover that it is not possible to create less hierarchical organisations solely through better hierarchical leaders. Now, I guess I've come through various uh, industries and organisations, and it seems to me that people that move up the hierarchy tend to be good hierarchical leaders. They don't empower others. They're good engineers that become good engineering managers, but they can't lead or engage people. So really, there's a changing paradigm. And if you look at the, the, the changing paradigm model, many of you perhaps can relate to this. So last century, in the 20th century, really 80% of our time was spent on, on management versus 20% on leadership. How many people would, would agree that would be the dominant style in their organisations? No agreements? The dominant style being um, an 80% focus on management versus 20% on leadership. And here I'm talking about budgeting, directing, controlling, maintaining, uh, resource allocation taking up the bulk of our time, 20% uh, competing for today or problem solving for today. So not preventing problems, um, solving problems. Where 15% is about training and education and yet only 5% planning or guiding the direction, or putting the direction for the business to move forward. So how many people would subscribe to that model in their current organisations? That that, that, that's where it is now. <laughs> You're the, you're, you're the only one? No. I'm seeing lot, lots of nods. But I've seen a lot of my clients. A lot of your clients. I wouldn't necessarily say that the leadership part was that high. <laughs> oh, the leadership part's not that high. Yeah. Right. Well, certainly with the number of organisations we deal with, that would be the current state of play. Where we're trying to shift them is into more focus on setting the vision and strategy. So creating, if you like, a horizontal approach to leadership, getting it across the organisation and then vertically how to get people aligned, how to coach, motivate and develop them to give the, or create the results that you want to see. So it's very much less focused on the process structure and certainly less time measuring and evaluating. So you know the results, you impart the results that you want to try and create, but you don't necessarily control the process to gain the results. You empower them to take action. You agree? And that's where we're trying to shift. So the dominant principle of organisation really, really has shifted. Basically from management in order to control an enterprise, to leadership in order to bring out the best in people, and quickly respond to the, the changing marketplace that's out there. So if you look at the, the next diagram, which is really a little bit more on that 20th century management control paradigm, which is very much top down. We have our top management or senior management supported in some cases by middle management. There's not too much middle management left in our organisations. Department heads or department, departmental managers, supervisors and workers. Now the results are still achieved, but the results are achieved by the behaviours or the actions we take. And usually in this model through co coercion. And the coercion is derived from the control. So we, we talk about fear and incentive motivation. <coughs> Now, does fear and incentive motivation work? Terribly. Always. Fear for our families. What's the problem with fear and, and reward motivation? You've got to be on top of it all the time. Got to be on top of it all the time, but what else? It can be gained. Sorry? It can be gained. It can be gained, yeah. It could stifle creativity and could innovation. stifle creativity and, in, and innovation. It's usually a short-term measure. And it doesn't deliver long-term results. So if you can sort of keep that in your mindset now as we move into, um, into the next paradigm. But the control-based hi hierarchy is still prevalent in many organisation models right now. Despite years of total quality, we all remember total quality or TQM, re-engineering and dozens of other change prescriptions, fundamental transformation is still an illusion, still not quite there. So if you look at the next model, 
this, this really is the empower, empowerment paradigm, where if you look at a number of organisations that are populated by professionals or personal leaders, these are people that are at the top of the organisation because of their professional qualification and experience, with team leaders that really support them and organisational leaders at the department heads. Now, they still get the results, but the results are bottom-up driven. And to create the result, you need to have good, good relationships with your staff and with your management. There needs to be some alignment. So trust is really the, the backbone of that relationship between uh, employees and business leaders or senior managers. And that leads to empowerment. If you have that trust and you have that relationship model, it's easier to empower other people to take action. But we also make them more accountable. We can delegate responsibility and authority, but usually accountability stays with us. But if you assign the task, we can actually assign accountability to them also. They then take on a, a, a personal responsibility, so they're now held accountable and also personally responsible for the actions they take. Now, we call that attitude motivation. So if you remember fear motivation and incentive motivation, short-term results, usually they always work. So you can threaten someone, well, if you don't do your job right, well, don't bother coming back on Monday, and usually performance increases, but maybe short term. Or you can reward them with um, uh, you know, increased monetary gain. Again, performance would increase, but again, short term, because they want more and want more. The thing that actually aligns and galvanises them towards the business objectives is really their attitude. How does that change? So attitude motivation. And then that leads to improved behaviours or the actions they take, which gives longer-term results. So if you think about leadership today, and I've got a few stats here, um, you might want to jot a few of these down. Two-thirds of TQM re-engineering initiatives fail. Two-thirds. Why? Because uh, people aren't engaged. 70% of organisational change programmes fail. So if you go through and try and change your organisational culture, 70% of those fail. Why? Because we're not changing the attitude. We're changing incentive or motivation through fear, but we're not changing people's attitudes. Over 70% of organisational strategic plans fail. So think of that. Look at the organisations that we see out there <coughs> performing well. Look at the ones that aren't performing well. The strategies fail. They have to reassess and replan. So there's a, a real need for a new leadership development context. So you'd like to write this down. In, in terms of the total leader concept, which I want to move into now, there are two key principles. So principle number one, everyone must become a leader. So leadership is not a position. It's a way of thinking, believing, and behaving. Okay, so first principle. If you think about it, leadership is everyone's business. Leadership is not a title. It's a set of skills and abilities that can be learned. <clears throat> they are just as valuable whether you're in the executive suite or on the front lines. So leadership applies at the strategic level as well as frontline level, as long as we're thinking about personal leadership. No leader can possibly have all the answers. The actual solutions about how best to meet the challenges of the moment have to be made by the people closest to the action. Change how you define leadership, and you change how you run a company. And the best companies create with themselves a company of leaders. All right? So everyone can become a leader. Everyone can become the CEO of their particular contribution to the strategy. An organisation in which employees at every level take initiative and act as owners of the firm. And Peter Block, <coughs> excuse me, Peter Block says, leadership is about developing leaders, not followers. So the second concept, the second total leader concept, is effective leaders are balanced, whole, complete, total leaders. Okay, so two concepts. This is concept number two. John, John, can I interrupt? Yep, sure. Have you got a good example of someone that fits that bill? Have yeah, to take questions as we go through this. Yeah, um, if, I, if I go back a couple of years, and people may not be familiar with the name I'm about to mention, but 
Graham Cray, who used to be the managing director of an automotive company called Pacifica and became the, the chairman of BHP, NAB and so forth, was a person that for me embodied really what total leadership was about. When I first met him, he had responsibility for 1,100 people in his organisation, knew everyone at least by first name, he could walk through and have a conversation with everybody. He engaged us, engaged us as the leadership team at every step of the, the strategy. So it wasn't something that was imposed upon us. It was something that we had contribution to. So for, for me, he was someone that really embodied really what leadership was about in terms of um, empowering others to take action. But from a family perspective, he was very focused on, on family too. So he had that sort of total balance between what I need to do in business, but also what I need to do in terms of work-life balance. And that was reflected in how in, in, in his behaviours. Well, but the staff as well. Yeah. And he, so and expected them, so the values come from the top. He, he didn't actually, that's an interesting point, John, he didn't actually have the expectation of everybody. But what he, what he did was role model the behaviour yeah. that he wanted to see from his leadership team. And so I think if, if you role model the behaviour you want to see, you stand a better chance of actually getting people engaged and connected with where you want to go. Sorry? Yeah, sometimes they like to use holistic leadership yeah. as the concept. How do you think this word or what's the difference? Well, you use the word you're, you're, you're comfortable with. Um, I, I prefer to use total because when I'm talking to practical and pragmatic business leaders, if I, if I talk in, in, let's say, MBA speak, they don't understand me. But when I put it into the total leadership, they understand, oh, total. So I explain total. But it's, it, it's, it's a very similar principle. Does that answer your question? Terrific. Leaders of the 21st century must find ways to tap the emotion. So you often hear the term emotional intelligence. Now, really, when I think about emotional intelligence, we understand the, the attributes people have, the values they have, the experience they have, the skills they have. So why don't they perform at the level we want? It's usually the emotional energy that's missing or the emotional intelligence that doesn't galvanise what they, they do have. So really, um, leaders need to find ways to tap the emotions as well as the minds of the employees at all levels. Without the emotional commitment of people, you cannot expect to sustain a competitive advantage for any great length of time. Now, what I'd like to do, and excuse the... Um, the props here, I was committed to not doing a PowerPoint presentation. I'm used to standing in boardrooms with PowerPoints, but the model here was no PowerPoint, so I'm committed to not doing it. So I thought, well, let's build a model. Let's create a jigsaw on what the total leadership concept is. So if you can have a look at the, the axes, on the, the x-axis, we're talking about the focus that we have, whether it's for us personally, which is all about ourselves. So we focus on what our needs are, not necessarily other people, versus the interpersonal or the organisational <coughs> needs. So really, how do we connect with others? How do we engage with others? How do we build those relationships with each other in our organisations? So the fo focus is on self or interpersonal, how we work with others. The, um, the x-axis is really about the process. Do we use our head and therefore our logic, or do we lead from the heart, which is really about that emotional aspect? So the which do we do and which do we think we do? Is that a, <laughs> is that a rhetorical question? Or? Yes. I agree. What I'd like to do now is build this model and four jigsaw parts, so, I'm sorry, your name? Irene. Irene, you can probably reach that, but if you can just hold it up, we'll explain it as we do. Yeah, yeah and, and for me. <laughs> so, so really, when we're speaking about ourselves in terms of the focus and the process using our head and our logic, really what we're trying to do from a total leader concept is increase our personal productivity. How can we become more effective and how can we become more uh, results focused through improving our personal productivity? How do we focus on the important things 
in an organisation, whether it's at a department level, a team level or a strategic level. And how do we actually create a leading performance out of personal self? So if you can just fit that in that area. Have you done jigsaw puzzles before? <laughs> has, has to go to the edge. Oh, right, okay. Should have brought her along. Above all, leaders are doers, and they do the thing they can do with excellence to make a difference. So really, that's, that's a doing part. The next one is, if we start looking at a heart and the emotion, and leading ourselves, this is really at the personal leadership level. Okay, so in order to lead others, we need to have the capacity to lead ourselves first. To have an insight into our, how others will follow our, our directions or our strategy, we first need to understand how we are going to do that. So really this is personal leadership. In other words, how we lead ourselves. Maybe, maybe, maybe. You're very keen to do this now, aren't you? Is it? Another one. Do you have a jigsaw? Yeah, I'm going to publish very soon. Okay, do you have a jigsaw? Where's the attribution? I thought she was getting a new placer because she got slightly wrong way. And you still leave it. That's all right. See, I've been empowering her to take action. She really wanted to do it a second time. It's fantastic. Personal leadership is the most important of institutional transformation. That's from Lou Gerstner, former CEO of IBM. So even at IBM being a very high technology <laughs> environment, see the need for personal leadership, accountability right at the self level. But the second most important thing in terms of leadership is strategic leadership. So if we're going to be total leaders at that very senior level, we need to have a good understanding of how to set strategy and get people aligned to strategy. So in other words, how to lead the organisation. Des, would you like to complete that part of the jigsaw? I'm in strife, aren't I? <laughs> The last part of the jigsaw is motivational leadership. Okay, so again, this is at the emotional level, but at the interpersonal level as well. So how do we motivate ourselves, and how do we create the environment to motivate others? We can't get others to do. They need to be in the space themselves where they're self-motivated to make the choices that you want them to make. Does that make sense? So you can tell people what to do, and if you're a manager, they'll do it. But if you tell people what to do and you're a leader, if they do it, you're not leading. They need to make the decision and be self-motivated and make the choice to take action. So really, motivational leadership is, is really the essence about leading others. Uh, there's a TM just there. <laughs> uh, but, but I think, honestly, um, plagiarism we encourage in our organisation because as adults, we learn through working with others. So I actively encourage plagiarism. Copy. It's still trademarked, so um, you need to cite us, that's all. <laughs> I like the quote from um, George Bernard Shaw, who said, those that, who cannot change their minds cannot change anything. So if you think about that, that's really attitudinal motivation, isn't it? So attitude really is the habit of thought. So if we're not thinking right, then we're not acting right. Because our actions are really um, governed by the way we think, our attitudes. I'd like to finish off with uh, talking about some of the qualities of a um, transformational leader. And I think some of these will ring true with, um, with some of you. Qualities of a transformational leader, they have a clear vision of the future. So what I look for in, in leaders is those that can articulate 
and galvanise people into the future. Whether it's three or five years, I'm not ultimately concerned about, but if they can articulate well where the organisation is going, to me that's clearly an indication that they're in the transformational field. Excuse me, John, the time frame being contextual? So for a, every, every, for a CEO, three to five years, for a C-level manager, maybe one to two years, for a middle manager, maybe three to six months? Absolutely. Everything has to be seen in context. Yeah. Absolutely. So the vision for the future for someone yep. at a middle level might be just the rest of the year or the next six months, whereas the CEO yep. and the board, they should be looking the vision for the Absolutely right, yeah. Look at it in the context at the level within the organisation. Good call. The next one is they act out of integrity and adhere to their values. Now sometimes people confuse integrity with honesty. What, what, what do you think integrity means in a contextual sense in an organisation? What's integrity? Doing what you say you'll do. Doing what you say you'll do when you're going to do it. Absolutely right. And I heard someone today say that for them that's the most important thing that they expect from leaders, integrity. They use the power of alignment. We've spoken a lot tonight about getting people aligned. So you can use fear motivation to get them aligned. You can use reward motivation to get them aligned. But the attitude will keep them aligned and that will give you a better chance of achieving longer-term results. They understand the necessity of change and know how to implement it. Okay, so that's not change for change's sake, but it's knowing when I need to turn left as opposed to turn right. It's about having enough market intelligence to know what strategy needs to be put in place to give us the results we're looking for. They practice the three E's envision, energise and enable. They educate their people how to set goals. So I came across a Harvard uh, Business Review article some time back. It goes back to MBA graduates, I think in the, in the 70s, where they did a study on the, the top 10 high-performing MBA graduates and where they were in their organisations, which, funny enough, just happened to be in the top 500 fortune companies in the US. The top 10% in terms of salary and achievement in their careers were the ones that set goals. The top 3% were the ones that actually wrote them down. So if you set a goal, you're more likely to achieve something. If you actually write it down, you're committed to achieving it. This is where personal leadership or transforma uh, transformational leadership at the self-level really comes to play. They, they know some of their people's personal goals. So there's usually a fine balance in an organisational sense, isn't it? Knowing what your people are in the organisational context versus their personal background. So it's always a fine balance knowing where to stop, where to go. But you need to be in tune with what your people's or, um, personal goals are. Because they come to work to achieve their personal goals. They don't come necessarily to work to, to assist you achieve your results. They've got their own results and goals to achieve. They know how to ask for help. I'm always impressed with uh, the senior leaders in organisations that have the humility to say, well, I don't know. What do you think? Rather than create that inauthentic approach that I'm the boss, I should know, so um, I'll get back to you type of thing. So they have the humility to actually admit that they don't know and I'll find out. They ask for help. They coach, not criticise. So it's very easy when you're in an organisation to say, well, you stuffed up there, didn't you? But it's much harder to say, well, it didn't quite work out, but let's have a look at the solution to make sure it doesn't happen next time. They're good communicators. Oh, sorry, I'm jumping ahead. They develop learning organisations. So the ones that are continually learning and development and investing in the people are the ones that are more successful as transformational leaders. They work harder on themselves than on their people. So I guess this comes back to self-leadership as well. So to be an effective leader, I need to keep developing myself. As I said right at the beginning, MBAs lack currency after a while. I'm a strong believer on that. I'll give you seven years and then it has little, if any, relevance. 
maybe I'm a heretic here, but I strongly believe that. And so that's why I go out and keep learning and keep developing. They make decisions and stick to them. How many times have you been in a situation where you've had to make a decision and you've got very little information or very little time to actually make that decision? I think your people are looking for a decision, whether it's the right one or the wrong one, but to actually make the decision and stand by the consequences, either positive or negative. They have their own board of directors. They are good communicators. And they exercise wisdom. So I'd like to finish by saying really the number one most critical leadership competency as, as a total leader is interpersonal communication skills. So I'll leave it there. I've introduced you to a total leadership concept model. Um, there's a couple of handouts, there aren't too many, but if people do want to have that, more than happy to, to share that. More than happy to answer any questions or um, any queries. Happy to take comments as well. So, thank you. John, I'm not going to do a DBA. There is no <laughs> one doing any more study. The MBA was more than enough for me. But, but I, I take your point that it's easy to lose that currency. And I always, when I speak at the uh, graduating dinners, I always say there's an 18-month currency for MBA in terms of the marketplace. But you're right. From employees, but from a personal point of view, probably that seven-year itch is probably around the time where we should all probably think of doing something different and, and adding to our qualifications. And what that is, whether it be a DBA, we've got... Um, our friend and colleague here from the DBA, part of uh, GSB, uh, whether it be that or whether we just do another course or whether yeah. we take up some other activity. Uh, but yeah, you're right, you always need to set those goals. So yeah. I think tonight, uh, John really talked, well, the things that came out for me was engaging our people and engaging, uh, delegating the authority to them to actually lead themselves and help us lead in our businesses. And I know that in big organisations, it's very hard to do that especially at the front line. I mean, at Crown, we've got 6,000 staff, so to do that is, is a huge task, but something which we can all, all aim for, and aligning your people. And, and I like the one about your fear being a short-term term incentive. It definitely is. It, it may work for a short time, but to, to sort of make it more meaningful uh, would have a longer-term longer effect. Uh, attitude, motivation, and your, your stats about the 70%. Uh, failure rate is pretty amazing in terms of strategies and uh, culture change and re-engineering and things like that. So uh, I think tonight I've, I've learned a lot from what you've said. Uh, I think John's happy to take some Q&A if there's anyone that has some burning issues on leadership or, or questions on how they should deal with uh, uh, impression of personal productivity, which uh, I want to speak to you about that later. <laughs> and uh, I'll, I'll leave the floor open. Would anyone like to... Or no, even comments or yeah. suggestions. I mean, that attitude, motivation one is an interesting yeah. one because I think that the, particularly in large organisations, as Grant talked to, and having worked in very large banking industry, I, uh, leaders themselves somehow you have to get that to go down through the organisation, and unfortunately, some of them aren't going to cut it. That's right. Yeah. And uh, it, it requires a, a big commitment and a fairly hard-nosed approach to uh, exiting the people who aren't prepared to change from being a line manager interested in my own perspective to uh, somebody who's prepared to work for others in the building organisation. Uh, and I think that may be the fundamental issue with a lot of the failure. It's not about the top-level people wanting to make the change. I think it's about their commitment to actually exiting the people who can't Yeah, making the decisions. Yeah. And real ability to actually get things done because by the time they make the choice to do this, gone through the process, there's a new strategic agenda on the horizon. They're now focusing on that. But down the bottom, they haven't even got there yet. And I've certainly worked in an organisation where programs that we were just starting where I was were actually being killed off at the top because they weren't seen as effective. But we're still going through them, and we're just starting them. We're just starting them. Yeah, uh, three years down the track, when yeah. there was a new idea coming through. Yeah. So, but you know, I also think 
and I made a note that it, sometimes it may be the history, the structure of the organisation too, that, that you know, I'm currently working in a, a, a government department and you know, I'm sitting there amazed at how they do things and the bureaucracy that serves no purpose but to fill out papers. We've got a photocopy which says, you know, think green when you print. So every meeting you go to, you print 10 copies of the 300 page document so everybody gets one. Because they won't have read it in the email. Yeah. So you need to, you know, and there's no, I suppose, culture of um, yeah, doing this with, through the organisation. But right at the top, they'll go to the programs, they'll go to, they're all nice, but they never get down to that real operational level. Yeah, and so that's that yeah. Part of it's the structure, it's the reason, the purpose of the organisation, it's the culture, it's the environment the organisation exists yeah. in. All kind of organization. Yeah. It's all of that, isn't it? But yeah. what they haven't done is got everyone engaged, everyone enrolled, everyone yeah. focusing on personal leadership to, to make those decisions. And yeah. yeah. as Dale said, they haven't got rid of the people who aren't interested in doing that because it destroys their it, database. It's yeah. fascinating. If you've been there a little while before that type of leader comes in to hear the responses to it, yes. we'll just wait him out. Yep. He's a common one. We'll just wait him out. And, you know, yeah, yeah, I've been in a place where that's been said. I've seen this yeah. come and go, and yeah, he'll go, and that's right, we'll still be here. Got it. Yeah. So, John, it occurs to me that the, the better motivations, attitude, rather than I didn't say. I didn't Lord say it's better. Yeah, no, I didn't say it's better. No. no. Okay, but okay. So leaders yeah. use attitude motivation rather yeah. more than they use. More than, yes, yeah, so okay. I, I can accept that. Yeah. So it occurs to me that then in recruitment we should be looking for attitude, not necessarily skills. Well, you need both, don't you? No, because no, skills you can learn. You can learn skills a lot easier than, sorry, you, you can enhance someone's skills a lot easier yeah. than you enhance their attitude. I, I reckon, unless someone's got some magic formula. I think you look for the skills, and, and to be honest, the, the skills is the easy part. You can check that through resumes, referees. Um, so on and so forth. Then you need to check the attitude and there's a whole myriad of assessment tools out there. But I think the key to it is really what I refer to as FOG. Spell P-H-O-G. No, it's P-H-O-G. <laughs> which is prophecy, hearsay, opinion and gut feel. When you think about it, at the end of the day, you, you do the analysis, which is the hard number crunching. You check, do they have a degree in accounting, as they say. You can check that qualification. Do they have the experience that they purport to have? Yeah, you can check that. The referees, you can check that. So that's easy, but I don't know. Let's do an assessment. Do they have the emotional intelligence we're looking for? You can check that. But at the end of the day, do they connect with me? Do I feel comfortable about it? My gut instinct says, I can't work with them. So what are you going to do? Are you going to trust your instinct, or are you going to go with the science, or with the analysis? You do all of it, don't you? And if your instinct says no, well then, no is no. But sometimes you get like perfect person, he or she only stay two months and go. I don't believe in perfection. Mm. No. Seemingly perfect. Seemingly perfect, okay. Yeah. Well, you, you, you need to do all the analysis up front and the, the fog. And then if they don't work out, well, then they don't work out. You need to acknowledge that and then move on. I'm sorry, your name you, you were talking about, that we don't make those decisions to move the people that aren't performing. Uh, well, yeah, it's, it's the one place that I have seen change programs fall down. They're yeah. not hard-nosed. Um, yeah. um, you know, I, I, have a reputation as being someone who lets it someone very yeah. quickly if I don't think they fit where we're trying yeah. to go. And, and you know the ones that, when you're trying to get rid of people, the ones who are voluntarily go are the best people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you create the space for them to make that decision, don't you? No, no, but the yeah. best people stand up and go, I'll go. If there's not enough yeah. five at this level, I'll go. Yes. And then you've lost all your best people. You go, shit, now we've got the heads left. Because if they've got nowhere to go, they're not going to put their hand up. But, yeah. but if they're not performing, you need to be very clear on what the performance measures are. <laughs> Have you had the conversation in terms of what the expectations are? Then you manage them against the expectations and the results you're looking for. And then it becomes a very clear decision-making process. As long as you, you articulate, well, this is what I expect, this is what's delivered, there's a gap. What are we going to do about closing the gap? 
is there a performance issue, is there a development issue, is there a skill issue? And when you've isolated those, I think we're duty-bound to, to try and solve that. But if it's unsolvable, well, then you need to make a decision. Am I prepared to stay with this person or prepared to exit them? And if you exit them, you, you've got to think, well, this is a win-win for everybody. The person isn't suited for the role, so they get the possibility and opportunity somewhere else. Mm -hmm. Okay. Give me an example. Well, say you don't have the authority to get rid of somebody. And oh, right. They, you have to work with that person, or they have to be part of your team. Yep. Any suggestions? Always believe. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The, the only suggestion I can make, and I'm a firm believer in this, is have an authentic discussion about their performance, how it impacts on you, and no one can argue with the way you feel about it. And so, well, when you do this, this is how I feel, and this is the impact it's well, having on my person. personal productivity. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the other approach. Mm. Can't find something else to do. Yeah, go somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you need to make the hard decision. <laughs> yeah. Th does that help? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's actually a John talking about the horrible bureaucracies. Do we actually build in too much process? Now, do we, do we, you're talking about assessing people and moving people on, do we actually make it too complex that we actually don't do it because well, we've got to do this, I've talked to HR, we've got to get these people, we've got to do this, yeah. it's easy to put up with them. Yeah. And work around them. Yeah. And then, then to actually do anything properly. But I've had a situation where I've actually been told, I'll cancel them. I said, hang on, I've been spent doing six months cancelling them. I said, oh, well, you'll need to cancel them again. And you, know, you couldn't actually get that, hang on, here's the problem, let's solve the problem. It was, let's, here's a piece of paper, here's the process, let's, here's another step, here's another step. Yeah. So, so, so you're going through a process and a routine. Yeah, and you're ticking boxes, yeah. but you're actually not doing anything about solving okay. the problem. Yeah. I think the comment on that is that there's certainly a situation where a lot of people try to make it somebody else's problem. Yeah. You know, I'm only going to be here for a couple of years and I'll move on anyway, so I'll just kind of leave them there and then somebody else will come along or they'll try and get them moved into another area. But look, the reality of it is... Oh, yeah. yeah, I've been caught by that one. <laughs> uh, but the reality of it is is that if you're truly a leader, you need to take that kind of decision yeah. to get on. And maybe you won't be the most popular man in town. Or a good leader could be the person that turns that person around. But maybe they're not performing for a various number of reasons. It may not be because they have the ability, but they might just not feel part of the environment. Yeah, maybe it's attitudinal. <laughs> or maybe, maybe it's uh, something at home. Or, so maybe if, you, if a good leader might take a different strategy to actually try and get them on board rather, rather than getting them out of the way. Yeah. I think that's what John may have been leading to when he sits down and have an honest chat. They might not have the vision and therefore the context and therefore the yeah. power to actually be overperformed. That's they right. Like perform yeah. and, and how are you going to find that out? You need a conversation, yeah, don't you? Exactly. Yeah. I would argue that by far the majority of people in most organisations wouldn't be able to articulate what the vision of the organisation was mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. Same reception, though. <laughs> no, it's in the January. Not always. <laughs> I think the interesting thing with it is, is people that I have encouraged to move on, that the actual need to go through the process has been very limited. Because in reality, when you point out the misalignment and the fact that they actually don't want to do the yeah, things that you want them to do, in a lot of cases, they'll go, yeah, you're right, I'll, I'll look for another role. It's so much role. easier for to resign than to sack them. Sorry? It's so much easier for them to resign than to sack them. Yeah. <laughs> and I've had some of them come back to me and go, look, this is your last chance, I've been offered a job somewhere else, and I'm going, hmm, maybe I wasn't clear in that last chance. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's job point out, you always got those who actually have nowhere else to go and aren't going to volunteer, so... Yeah, they're not going to respond to those conversations. Oh, no, I will, mate. Oh, no, I'll say I'll I'll I still remember the first guy that I had, and I was short of staff, the first guy that I had to sack. I still remember. And I remember sitting down with him saying, this is what we've talked about, this is what we said, yeah. I've held my end of the bag, 
you've done this, yeah. we've tried again, and we've, now you've jeopardised the jobs of all your peers. Mm. What choice have I got? And he yeah. said, you probably have to let me go. I said, you're right. Yeah. And I didn't sack him, he, he was on the spot, yeah. because I asked him, I said, this is what's happened, what choice have I got? I put, let him stand in my shoes for a minute. So John, really, really what you did was explain the performance requirements you were looking at, and there was a gap. So, and he jeopardised the jobs of all his kids, yeah. like he jeopardised the whole project. The That's 20 right. people would have lost their jobs if we hadn't found out the wrong and fixed surreptitiously. 20 people would have lost their jobs. Right. And I sat and said to him, and he said, yeah, it's working out. So I didn't have, so the first guy I had to sack, I didn't sack him. Got it. But it was really hard, because it was full security, guards, armed guards, carry your bag, don't pick up that. It was a high security facility, yeah, and mm -hmm. it was really traumatic for me. Probably more traumatic for me than it was for him. Yeah. They thought I'd ask you a question. John, I have a question just a little bit off, steering off that topic slightly. Um, I was wondering with where we're at now in business, in the business, global business community, um, with issues like sustainability and for employees um, and your, your colleagues, work-life balance and those types of considerations. Um, what, in your travels, what organisations have you seen that have defined a purpose that sets a set of values that people actually want to come to, come to work and get on board with your goals? Because that, that's, that's the model that if it was ultimately adhered to and was really working at its finest, yeah. um, it would be bringing its own um, interest. Yeah. So have you seen any really successful efforts at that? Or, and is that emerging? Is that something that's coming? It, it is emerging, but not, not, not at a, a very fast rate. Mm. What, what's happening is, uh, uh, you've got to understand the context. What's a value for you may not be a value for someone else. An organisational value might be something you could subscribe to here, but not over there. So it means different things to different people. But what we need to do is find the connection that we have with an organisation. Do we subscribe to organisational values and do our values align? And that's a tough one. So usually you've got to make compromises. Well, I don't like that part, but hey, I can live with that. So everything we do in life is about choices. But every choice we make has a consequence, good or bad. I have seen a, an organisation, it happens to be a bank, where... Which bank? <laughs> it wouldn't be appropriate for me to, okay. to say, but no, but it's a bank, and it's not which bank, so that leaves you a few others to choose from. But they have a very, very strong articulated culture, or used to have actually, things have shifted and changed, where you could walk into the organisation and you knew precisely what they were about you could almost take a knife and cut a little piece of culture and value off. It was that clear. And that's an organisation that uh, we do some business with because our values align and we know who they are and what they are and, and vice versa. There's another organisation which is, um, I won't mention them, but they're in the, let's say, unhealthy product area. And they have a very strong culture and very strong value system which when I talk to people about it, are very surprised given the nature of the product that they provide. So there's a, a couple of examples. But they are few and far between, they really are. People have great difficulty understanding what a value is versus an objective and have great difficulty articulating it, let alone measuring it. How do you measure morale, for example? It means different things to different people. How do you measure a whole range of things? Work-life balance. How do you define work-life balance? Like I remember a CEO of a, a large brewing company, his whole attitude to work-life balance was working as many hours as he could. Loved it. That was his passion. That was his joy. Maybe that's part of it. It's, it's building in the fact that work-life balance is different for each person. It's different for each person. You need to define it yourself. Organisations can't define what work-life balance is for you or for me. That's something that's intrinsically personal to us. So that's recognising diversity, isn't it? Absolutely. And, and, and diversity is key. To be different externally, we need to be different internally.
otherwise you have a disconnect. So I just wanted to go back to the changing paradigms, because right to the first page, oh, yes. uh, looking at the 20th century and the 21st century, we're still very much in a transitional phase, not quite there, not quite here. Yeah. Well, we're only nine years into the new century, exactly. so it's still, yeah. still a while. So, so a, lot of, a lot of the leadership that I find in organizations is basically incompetent. Uh, and, and not, not, you know, I, I find that, and, and, and you don't get the vision, you don't get the strategy, you no. don't get the clarity of where the yes. organizations go, and you don't get that inspiration. Um, and you know, I consider myself in middle management. Yeah. And I spend the majority of my time managing upwards. That's right. Rather than managing down. Yeah. I don't have any issues with managing down or to the side, but most of my time is the leadership and the management managing upwards. So you know, my question I guess is 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 using that model. Because a lot of the discussion we've had today is talking about setting a vision and, and, and inspiring people that way. But it's much harder because the Organizations are still quite bureaucratic and still have that authoritative structure and directive structure about them to actually manage upwards in this transitional phase is much more difficult. Yeah. Uh, at where we're at now, maybe yeah. 20 years would be different. But where so, what are the activities that you perform in managing up? What, what sort of things do you feel you have to, you're forced to do to manage upwards? Well, in terms of um, communication, in terms of, of strategic direction, being empowered to. To, you know, like you said, be self-motivated and have your own leadership. So maybe give them more broad goals, and then be empowered to show your leadership within your role. If that doesn't happen, when that sort of, for me, for example, suits my style better, yeah. to to be empowered and then run with it. If you're not, then you've got to try and re-communicate that to manage upwards effectively. Yeah. Otherwise, it doesn't work. You get frustrated, and your your creativity is like. Yeah. Sorry, um, yeah. I heard all your comments, but I'm not sure I tuned into the question. What, what, what were you specific? To apply your model. Sorry. To apply your model. Yes. That way, as well as that way. Yeah. I mean, how how would you go about? Well, I'd have to get access to your senior leadership team, and what we do is create the space for them to make the decision. If they can't make the decision, they're not going to make the decision. It won't change. But you've got to create the environment in which they choose the better option. If I want greater results, I need to empower you, get you engaged, and get you aligned with the strategy. By way of example, we were dealing with a um, relatively large German organisation. And they're very much focused on compliance and control. Well, we know what to do, just do it. Now, Australians have a healthy disrespect for leadership. Don't tell me what to do. Tell me what results you need, and we'll deliver the results. So by telling an organisation, um, the CEO said, John, I just don't know what to do. I've told them what the strategy is. I've told them what needs to be done, and they're still not doing it. And I said, well, why don't we try a different path? Why don't we ask what they could do rather than tell them? Create the policy and direction and the framework that the organisation needs to move in. So if we want, um, they, they wanted at least 6% growth. And I said, well, set that as the benchmark, minimum 6%. But go and ask them what they could do. For the first time, they got double-digit growth year on year by asking and getting people engaged. But, but I needed to get access to, to him and the senior leadership team to, to change their attitude. It's the only way. Because when you're in there, it's really hard to actually yeah. to do it that way. You know, the empowerment is there. Absolutely. And it, the people are receptive yeah. to that sort of message. They're still stuck in the old paradigm. I <laughs> Last question, and it's a question from me, if you don't mind. Um, could I ask, what are people's thoughts or comments on the difference between management and leadership? So what does management mean? What's management about? We're in direct organising control. Yeah? We're the Terrific. <laughs> Fantastic. There you go. Yeah. What else? Any other comments? 
I mean, that was beautifully articulated. We have like four PowerPoint slides talking about that. Yeah. Like 15 words. Okay. Column. And what were the columns? Help me. <laughs> this is your assignment. Okay, yeah. I would say uh, doing the things right and doing the right thing would suffer okay. everything. Okay. Any other comments on management? I, I'd like to think of, I, I actually like doing what's right and doing the right thing. Yeah. Not necessarily the same thing either. No. But I, I also like that management's actually about the today. Leadership is about the future, so leadership is about how we get to the future and management is, well, how do we get through today? Okay. I'd suggest management is about presence. Yeah. Leadership is about results. Okay, yep. Empowering others to take action. Great comment from the back. Vision and inspiration. Yeah. Inspiration. How often do we see inspiration in our leaders? Can you think of one inspiring leader out in the business community now? You don't have to. Inspired by Kevin Reference. Once. No, no, I said at dinner. And he gave a speech which he'd obviously handwritten. Yeah. And he demonstrated the new what he was talking about. I was okay. surprised. Okay. And impressed. Okay. Well, there's only once. Only once, yeah. <laughs> I think politically we're, we're in a good space at the moment for inspiration. Okay. We think they're doing exactly what we would prescribe, whether they're doing what everybody would agree with. Yeah. Um, there's certainly vision towards a sustainable future. Yeah. I think, at least um, in many of the Western worlds right now, yeah. Addressing some of the critical issues that have got us to where we are. Absolutely. And so I think that to me is what inspiring. Yeah. And it does, it's not necessarily to be a leader to be inspirational. I think you know, ah. we say lots of people are inspirational. Mm -hmm. I've got lots of friends, I think. But can you be uh, inspirational at the personal leadership level? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. <laughs> So, you know, they have leadership type. Not at all. Not at all. Leadership is with anybody in the anywhere. I mean, some of the most inspiring people I've, I've interacted with from day to day are under 15. <laughs> <laughs> really. It's fantastic. What I look for in, in leaders is all those things that you said. Also, passion. Are we passionate about what we do? Do we have the energy to deliver the strategy? Do we have the drive? And what I heard around the table was sustainability. We don't often talk about sustainability at the leadership level. What I'm looking for now is sustainable inspiration. How do you be inspired on a sustainable basis? You were inspired once. No, once by one. No, once by one person at a lunch. That's wonderful, but. What about sustainable inspiration from Kevin Rudd at every lunch or every event? Yeah, next month I'm going to talk about leadership and management and how they work together. Fantastic. And leadership by itself is not enough. Not at all, no. Is there, is there a space for management? Is there a space for leadership? Absolutely. There are cases where you need to manage. Usually if there's a safety issue, get out of the building now. No questions. Go. That's management. Profit motivations. <laughs> so there are cases for management, and there's certainly cases for leadership at the personal level. But I think I'm holding you up from another drink. Oh, sorry. I really wanted um, your thoughts this on this. Might be the last one. Yeah, just uh, what you think is sustainable? What can be done to create sustainable inspiration? What can everybody do to maintain that without Kevin Rudd at the dinner table? No, no. Or Obama. I'm going to have to really, really think about that, that response because I'm only starting to think about inspiration in, in a sustainable sense. But for me, it has to be done at the personal level. First of all, we need to be inspired by ourselves. Are what we're doing the right things that we want to do with ourselves? If not, well then, gee, I'm not really inspiring myself, am I? I'm, 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 I'm on the, the treadmill, as they say. 
So first of all, Fiona, I think we need to be very conscious of what our values are, what we, what we represent, how we inspire ourselves. And when that package is tight and we know precisely who we are, what we are and what we represent, then I think we are duty bound to inspire others and create an environment in which they can self-inspire, if you like. And then how do we sustain that? Well, then you, you need to start setting goals. I mean, I mentioned that Harvard Business Review article. You need to set goals and keep doing that progressively all the time. Create new habits. Change an old habit to a new habit, and that can only be done over time. So you can set goals and actually change habits. Does that sort of help? All right, I just wanted to close. Thank you for coming again tonight. Uh, again, thanks again, and finally, thanks to John McMorrow. Uh, John, you are a wealth of information in this area, and uh, we may get you back next year to let us know how our leadership is going uh, in a year's time, and hopefully we're getting along those tracks of that model that you presented tonight. So thanks again. Thank you.